All right, tonight's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Mary was filled, oh, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. everyone. I appreciate also specifically your indulgence for permitting me to preach in uh, appropriate Christmas, Australian Christmas attire in my shirt, uh, my shorts and, uh, and thongs. I try and do this once a year as a tradition for myself and I'm obliged to tell you my wife did not sign off on this decision um, and so she is free of any culpability um, if, you are, if you're looking for someone to blame. That's all me. Um, so thank you for being here on this Christmas Eve. We appreciate you joining us and making this a wonderful night of celebration of God. And uh, as we've been going through this Christmas season, we've been looking at characters around the cradle, about the characters who are involved in the Christmas story. Um, and I think we'd be remiss to do so without speaking about Mary, the mother of our Lord. Um, Mary's one of the most interesting and divisive characters in church history. Uh, all Christians agree, more or less, that Mary is... Uh, Theotokos is the, the Greek and the fancy word for it. It's a word the church fathers use when talking about Mary. It means God-bearer, the one who brought uh, God's incarnation into the world uh, through her body. Um, she, unlike anyone else in history, was chosen by God to be the vessel to bring the Son of God into the world, and that's not nothing. But what it really means to be this, this God-bearer, this Theotokos, is a source of contention for the global church. Uh, Protestant denominations, Baptists included, uh, we see Mary as a blessed woman who uh, acts admirably and faithfully in the scripture from what we see of her, um, and Catholics, of course, uh, see much more there through a combination of tradition uh, and reasoning, and I would say maybe going beyond what the Bible describes on its own, they see Mary as a, maybe like a feminine counterpart to Jesus himself. Not that she dispenses grace like Jesus does, but uh, that God chooses her to bring Jesus into the world, and therefore she's played a part uh, in this work of salvation. Now, obviously, we're shocked to learn I'm a Baptist, um, having attended a Baptist church and seeing me here, as you are. Um, I think Mary is a special and blessed lady, and uh, speculating beyond that is probably bad, a bad theology, but she is a special and blessed lady, and 
When the angel tells her that she will bear God's son, she is told that she is blessed among women. God chooses her when he might have chosen any other woman with some adjustments in time, world history to be Jesus' mother. So it's worth our time to look at her admirable qualities and see what scripture shows, uh, shows in her to us. Uh, why does God raise her up as blessed among women? And the first of the three things that I'd like to look at tonight, if my clicker is going to help me, there, is that she questions without doubting. Uh, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, uh, to tell her that she'll be the mother of Jesus, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asks, since I am a virgin? Now this is an important question because Gabriel's reaction to this question uh, is to explain to her fairly gently, that the Holy Spirit is going to pass over her, uh, she'll become miraculously pregnant, uh, that God's able to do this, don't worry about it, Mary, God has that under control. What a reasonable guy Gabriel is in this case. This is important because 20 verses ago, uh, in the Christmas story, Gabriel appears to a man called Zechariah. Zechariah is a minor Christmas character. He's the husband of Mary's relative, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is going to uh, have a child who will be John the Baptist. Uh, both Elizabeth and Zechariah are getting old, it tells us. They have not been able to have kids, but God's going to grant them uh, to become pregnant, to have a child in their old age, and that child will be John the Baptist. And Gabriel appears to Zechariah, and he says, you will have a uh, your, your wife will have a child who will be a special, uh, special holy man who is filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Uh, this is all quite difficult for Zechariah to accept, and he asks, well, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is not so young herself. Basically, the same question that Mary asks. You are going to have a child? He says, maybe that's impossible. How? Gabriel is not particularly reasonable in this case. Um, he doesn't say, well, let me explain to you how miraculous our God is. He rebukes Zechariah. He puts a kind of a curse on him so that he can't speak until the child is born uh, as a result of his, uh, his lack of faith in that case. He says, hey, I'm an angel that you're looking at. Um, I am bringing you good news. You have the nerve not to believe me. You're going to wear this foolishness around on your, on your head for a while. And he does. Uh, for the duration of that pregnancy, Zechariah cannot speak. Uh, and then the, that is lifted after the pregnancy, and he's praising God's name for the wonderful thing he's done. So he learns his lesson. Uh, it's a punishment that, uh, that gets the desired result. He doubts the word of God's messenger, and he is spurned accordingly. But Mary says, how can I become pregnant since I have known no man? And she gets a pat on the head and a gentle encouragement, and not nine months of being muted. What gives Gabriel, uh, playing favorites maybe, the answer must be this difference in the hearts behind the questions when they're asked. Zechariah had doubts. Mary had difficulties with this, but not quite doubt. Uh, John Henry Newman, he's an interesting figure in church history, he was an Anglican priest who became a Catholic priest and uh, eventually a cardinal. He had a famous saying that 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. And I like that saying because I think that's a very clear way to say uh, what our church has taught for as long as I can remember, certainly. And you might have heard people say phrases like, uh, the opposite of belief uh, isn't doubt, the opposite of belief is unbelief. Um, and it's the same sentiment that the heart, um, the heart of, of belief is not threatened by asking questions about it. Uh, 
It just runs into trouble in that definition when we use the word doubt because a lot of places in scripture, doubt is seen as a very negative thing. And it's hard to let doubt off the hook. But if you're in a spiritual place where you're wondering, I'm not sure if God is really there. I don't know, I don't think he really cares about me. I'm not sure he's really uh, saved me. That's doubt and that's a very bad place to be in spiritually and you should talk to someone. Uh, You should speak to a pastor or a Christian friend who you trust. Uh, You should talk these doubts out and and get to the bottom of them. Uh, Make an appointment with a pastor to do so if you want. Uh, Happy to talk to you after the service. But when Newman calls difficulties, these are not the same as doubts because The Bible promises that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the bedrock of our faith, and that must be our understanding that Jesus, the Son of God, he pays the price for our sins with his blood. As a result, uh, he is our Lord and Savior. That's the bedrock, the rock on which we establish our faith. That's where salvation happens. Uh, Everything past that can be maybe a difficulty to to understand or grapple with, but... um, You can learn and you can ask and you can uh, investigate and your your belief can grow and strengthen. You can ask those questions in good conscience as a believer without fearing that you are doubting and doing something wrong. Because nothing that we struggle with actually has the power to uproot that bedrock of our faith. You might have a difficulty with the idea that uh, God has all the power in the universe but doesn't snap his fingers and take away all the cancer and illness that you see in the world. That would be a difficulty, but it doesn't need to be an undermining feature. It doesn't need to be a doubt in your faith. Uh, You might have difficulty with the position of the church that marriage is between one man and one woman. You might have uh, gay friends or be gay yourself and say, I don't understand how that would be the instruction of a loving God. And you can have that as a difficulty with what the church may teach without it being a doubt in God's true, real saving grace. And even on uh, very important subjects like these, you can have uh, difficulty in understanding or agreeing with some mainstream belief uh, about God's will. But the core, the salvation, the fact that Jesus dies for us, that he is the son of God who was sent into the world to pay for our sins, to invite us back into relationship with him, that's the bedrock of our faith. And as long as you're not undermining that, then you're questioning, you can have difficulties, but that doesn't constitute doubt that God would punish. And so when Mary says, Gabriel, I don't understand how I'm supposed to have a child without knowing a man, uh, she's asking a question without doubting the will or the power of God behind it. And that's a trait that all believers should be willing to emulate in their own lives. God wants us to genuinely seek him, to know more about him, to understand his will more. That means being honest about what we believe and the parts of the teaching with which we have difficulty or objection. It does no one good to pretend to accept a teaching uh, if you have questions in your heart. It's not unrighteous to seek understanding in a humble way. And so Gabriel tells Mary that God will supernaturally invest her with this child. And Mary says... Mary says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, you may disagree, but that response from Mary after Gabriel's explanation doesn't sound outright convinced to me. Uh, It sounds obedient, but maybe not outright convinced. She doesn't seem to be saying, oh, well, of course, the Holy Spirit will pass over me and invest me supernaturally with a child. When she says, I am the Lord's servant and may your word be fulfilled, sounds like that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, But I trust God to do his thing and I will submit and I will play my part. 
And that would be a very reasonable thing to say because a virgin giving birth is impossible. It's not unreasonable to lack the imagination to explain how the impossible can happen. But when God calls on us to act, to believe him, to have faith, we need to obey without reservation. That's what it means to be a child of God. When our father speaks, we hear his voice and we do his will. We have faith in him because we trust that he has the best wisdom, the best intention for his children. And that's another dimension uh, to that question, which is how do you know that God is speaking to you so that you can obey without hesitation? And that's a question maybe for another time. Mary knows because an angel is telling her directly to her face. If that happens, that's a pretty straightforward being told by God. And she has her difficulties about how that will work. But ultimately she says that God's will should be done. May your words to me be accomplished. And likewise, we should be cultivating in ourselves this same, uh, same sense, the same desire to obey the will of God when it comes to us, whether in big ways or in small ways. Here's an example that I like to spring on my youth occasionally, kind of an obscure example, but media piracy. My youth are tensing up because they know that I've talked about this before. And the movie industry kind of made a laughing stock of itself with these really edgy ads you might have seen going to the movies where they say, you wouldn't steal a car, would you steal a movie? Um, and <laughs> right, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, and everyone would laugh at those ads, and everyone under 35 years old just sort of waved it off, uh, and they still download TV shows and movies and games rather than pay for them. And they know who they are, and they feel a little guilty about it because they know it's wrong. But they get really uncomfortable when you target it in discussion because it requires obedience to God's word in a way that inconveniences us, requires us to obey without having that as a reservation. I like getting stuff for free. I don't feel like I'm hurting anyone, but it's a small way in a person's life that they can be obedient to the word of God. It's an opportunity to be obedient without clinging to a reservation that's really just a defense of what a person wants. And if we can't be obedient in small things, then how are we going to be obedient in big things? If we can't say, I don't like this, but if it's your will, then let your will and not mine be done. If we can't say that about little, petty, silly parts of our life, the things we consume or the way we talk or... Uh, whether we show up to church on time or late, or whether I volunteer to help or to keep my head down for some event, uh, how can we be expected in ourselves to become obedient about big things? And Mary is given one of the most important roles that has been given to any human being in the history of the world. An angel tells her, effectively, I need you to uh, be prepared to mystically conceive and then give birth to this child who will be the son of God. People are going to think of you as an adulteress. They will probably not believe you when you tell them how this happened. Uh, you're going to have to raise this child uh, as your own, being your own, and then at some point he's going to stop being just your child and he's going to start being the savior of Israel and he's going to, in some sense, belong to everyone. Indeed, you'll be subject to him. And so in a way, you're just going to have to give up that mother-child relationship for this greater purpose. And Mary says, how is that going to happen? But then after that is done, she says, may God's will be done. May your words to me be done. Now contrast that reaction 
to God's responsibility laid upon her to something like Moses back in Exodus when God tells Moses he is to be the deliverer of Israel from captivity, uh, that he will speak the words of God to Pharaoh, that he will get supernatural powers for the purpose of doing so. Moses cringes back and says, oh, no thanks, I would rather not. I would really rather someone else do this. Uh, and it struggles. Uh, he struggles very hard to become obedient at all. Same thing with many of the judges that come after Moses, Barak and Gideon. But if God requires our obedience, and he does, then we should do as Mary does. We should ask questions if we need to, but not hesitate to obey. She questions without doubting, and she obeys without reservation. And the third thing I gleaned from reading Mary's song, the, uh, the Magnificat that Alexandra read for us, uh, towards the end of Luke chapter 1, is that Mary praises God she worships him, she follows him, even though she doesn't completely understand his purposes and his will. She praises without understanding. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mean that as blessed as she is, she is not given the full picture of what God is accomplishing with Jesus. She doesn't have God's full plan laid out before her so that she can give her tick of approval and then choose to worship God and to work with him. She doesn't understand this purpose, but she gives God the glory even with her imperfect understanding. She celebrates without knowing everything. These verses there are the last two verses in the Magnificat. That's uh, God, that he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The last two lines of this song that Mary composes on the spot and sings in joy. To Mary, this is about the promise that God made to Abraham to honor his descendants, the Jewish people, and to remember them and to be their God forever. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's go through this whole song again uh, briefly. I'll read it again and listen to it, and you tell me, what do you think Mary is expecting Jesus to do? What does she expect this Savior is going to accomplish? It goes like this. Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now, who is the servant? The last lines tell us the servant is Israel. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So what's Mary's vision of the, the plan that she is playing a part in here? What role does she think her son is going to play? He's going to do, in her eyes, what uh, God has historically done with Israel when it was conquered by their enemies and the Israelites were suffering under a foreign nation for a long period of time. She thinks that he is going to bring down the thrones of the mighty. He is going to lift up the humble, uh, all the rich, the people profiting from, from snuggling up to the Romans who have occupied Israel at the, the time of, of Christmas. Uh, they're going to be out on their ear, and all the poor and the hungry, the real Israelites who are really suffering, they're going to be lifted up. And uh, She's going to be blessed forever because she will always be remembered as the mother of the king of Israel. She thinks the same thing that the disciples will think 
as Jesus goes through his ministry. The same thing that the Pharisees think that Jesus is trying to do. Uh, The same thing that the Romans are afraid he is gearing up to attempt to do through his ministry. Mary thinks her son is going to grow up and become in this lifetime a warrior, a prophet, a hero, a leader like Joseph's ancestor David, like King David. And that he's going to throw the Romans out of Israel and he's going to reign over the promised land in a new golden age. And she doesn't understand the real reason that Jesus came. As intimately connected to the Christmas story as she is, she doesn't understand yet the reason Jesus came. Joseph gets a message uh, from the angel in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and the angel says to Joseph, he will save the people from their sins, but even that would have a different meaning to Joseph and Mary. They'll hear that and think he's going to turn Israel back to God so that God will not permit Israel to be destroyed for its sinfulness. That's what it would mean to be saved from their sins. But really, they have no idea what Jesus is going to accomplish in his earthly lifetime. And worse, they're... Mary might even be a little bit wrong in the way that she is anticipating this in her song. That isn't to say that the scripture is wrong, but maybe her vision of what this is going to mean is wrong. Not only does Jesus not kick out the Romans, the Romans kill him. And 40 years after he rises from the dead, Israel isn't free from Roman tyranny under a new king that God has appointed from the line of David. Israel gets scrubbed off the map by Roman revenge. Jerusalem is smashed to the ground. The temple is destroyed and has never been rebuilt. The Jewish uh, promised land would not belong to the Jews again for another nearly 2,000 years. So she thinks that God is doing one thing and he's actually doing something else, something much greater. But that's not held against her. Her song is recorded in the Bible for all time. The joy that she has in singing is palpable through her words. She's delighted that God has blessed her, that he has sent his son into the world, and she gets to be a part of his plan, even if she doesn't quite know what that plan is going to look like. She's praising God because he's worthy of praise, because he's good, and because he cares for the lowly faithful in a world where the faithless might prosper. God is just, and he will see justice done. He is worthy of praise. And even if his plan doesn't turn out exactly how we expect We owe him our praise for those things he has done. And we don't have a final interview uh, with Mary where we see how her understanding of Jesus has changed, um, what it's like to have known him his whole life from when he was a baby and she was changing his nappies to then him becoming the savior of the world and the defeater of sin and death. That would be an interesting interview uh, with Mary to see how her understanding evolved. But her character throughout the gospel is nothing but attentive to the work of her son, seeking to know and follow him more, seeking to honor him, even if she doesn't understand his actions, Uh, even when he is clearly not raising an army to throw off the Romans, even when he's nailed to the cross. She appears faithful. And really, at the bottom of things, we praise God because he is worthy of praise, regardless of how he chooses to work out his will in the world. And that's so important for us to grasp because every Christian is going to spend their life praying for things that will sometimes happen and praying for things that sometimes will not. The world is not without disappointment and pain. Even now, after the Savior has come and died and risen and will yet come again. That world without disappointment and pain is still on the other side of the veil of tears 
And that's what faith is for. It's trusting God that as this bedrock foundation of our lives, we don't need all of the understanding. We don't need to know all things. And when things don't go our way, we can still trust in him and follow him. Not without difficulties and questions, but without doubt, without reservation. Because that's the world that Jesus was born into. He came into this world to share in such a life. The heavenly child was born on Christmas, not as a a silver bullet for a single people group to give them peace and security. We see him in the Gospels experiencing pain and disappointment and abandonment and suffering and temptation. We see him know the kind of life that we know, that humans know, because God became human so that he could know us at that level as human. And so that we could know him where we could otherwise not know him at all. And what an irony it is that Mary sang these praises to God that her child would perhaps become the king of Israel and reign over it in that way. But 2,000 years later, it's the Gentiles who are remembering her song and celebrating with her on Christmas. God did something bigger than deliver those people. He sent his son, the true inheritor of the promise of Abraham, uh, and declared that those and only those who seek forgiveness through that child would be welcomed into the blessings of Abraham and into life everlasting beyond it. And Mary sang her praises to God, and he accepted them even with her naivete. He uh, honored her in that way. And she obeyed without argument when God set his will before her, and she didn't allow the fact that she had questions to raise doubts in her. Her faith in God was built on the great impersonal promise that God had made to the Israelite people, and that faith in her was rewarded and not in any small part rewarded by being there to witness that promise transform. The promise of God transforming from impersonal to intimate and personal, from a promise to the Israelites to all the children of God, from a matter of security in the world and an everlasting legacy on earth to a promise of a new world and everlasting life. And all of this done by the child that called her mother, and who grew up into a man that we can call Lord and Savior. So let's pray together. Father God, as we remember the birth of your son in our celebration this year, we lift up our hearts and our voices to praise you for all you've accomplished and to praise him for all you've accomplished through him. And we thank you for the way that you work in the person of your son and the way you work in your mortal servants. We thank you for the, uh, the blessing you accomplished through your servant Mary and we pray that you would accomplish blessings through us by the same virtues in us. Help us when we have questions to, to have them without doubting you, Lord, and to pursue them in a humble way. Help us to obey without recoiling and hesitating. Help us to praise you every day of our lives even when we don't have the fullness of your plan unfurled before us. You sent your son to save us, and we'll grip that salvation, Lord, and we'll grip onto it with joy. Guide us to live in a way that glorifies you, whatever that looks like in the wisdom of your plan for us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you and pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.